We're headed for Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. It's so good that you came. Thanks for being here. And to study the Word with us, we're headed over to Philippians chapter 2. I was thinking as we are embarking on this a few weeks ago, this book of Philippians in this time of the year, that obviously this is another time, just like Thanksgiving is filled with all that rejoicing. Here we have that season of joy. You see it on the cards. You see it in the advertisements. It's all about, okay, this is a time of rejoicing, but there's going to be some of you in the auditorium, you're not going to be rejoicing. Some of you are already feeling the Scrooge bug hit. You got the pressure of the shopping, got the pressure of the cookies, got the pressure of the trees and the decorations, and you even have that that thing you're dreading most, getting together with some of your relatives. Okay. And so that takes and robs some of us of our joy. Just all the hecticness and all the busyness of what's going on. Well, Paul wrote in the book of Philippians about that idea of rejoicing. And this is a good book to study at Thanksgiving, Christmas time. That's why I launched into it, just for a brief period of time before we do some other series. And in this book, he's talking about rejoicing and joy. Eighteen times he mentions that concept of rejoicing or joy or giving praise. And so he's writing that to encourage the readers who are going through a variety of different instances and problems and difficulties. And he himself is sitting in prison. And while he's in prison, he's saying, hey, I've learned to be content in whatever state I am, and I am rejoicing in what's going on. Now, chapter 2, we've looked at chapter 1. Chapter 2 continues that thought. In fact, if you read in chapter 2, he starts off right away talking about this idea of rejoicing, where he says in this text, he says uh, later on, well, let me jump down where he's going to mention the uh, aspect. He says in verse 16, he says, I want to be rejoicing in the day of Jesus Christ. I want to know that I haven't run in vain, neither labored in vain. And so he's continuing that concept. He says, okay, let's be rejoicing. He's going to talk about it in the middle of this section. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to walk through part of chapter 2, and it is a meaty, meaty passage. It is one of the most most meat-filled or in-depth passages talking about the incarnation of Jesus Christ that you find in Scripture. And so get ready. We're not going to do something with, with fluff and, and just you know run over it, but we're going to look at a meaty passage. But I want to break it down this way. I want to show you a formula that you and I can follow these next few weeks during this holiday season and beyond how to maintain and keep a joy-filled heart. It starts with this. It starts with, first of all, living up to the essence of Christianity. Living up to the essence of Christianity. What do I mean by that? Well, what happens in this text is he's going to address a question that often comes up with a lot of people. You go on the web. You're going to find people asking all these questions, or you might run into people who are at work or who are, who are engaged with some school or some teacher. They're going to ask, what is Christianity? What's it, you know, what's it really mean? And there's all kinds of ideas that talk about Christianity is this, it's that, the other thing. In fact, if we were to get more practical, we might even ask these pointed questions. You know, why are we here after we're saved? What's this Christmas season about? Why even bother? Let's, let's be real, real pointed about. Why bother going to church? For some of you, you're thinking that right now. Why do I bother to go to church? I have to because mom and dad said I have to. I have to because my spouse drags me. Well, Paul is going to address some of these really hard issues and gets down to what is the essence of Christianity? What's it all about? Why are we here? What are we supposed to do to serve God? And basically, what he does is he's going to tell us that we can't just get involved with traditionalism and just go through the motions. There was a time, a few years ago, there was a time in Britain that what they did is they had some conservatives come in and they decided that they were going to cut back on some of the wasteful spending. Now, in the United States, we don't need that. But um, they were going to do that in, in London. And, and so what they did in the House of Commons, they started going through different groups and different settings to find out, okay, do we need this job? Do we need that job? Do we need this job? Do we need that job? Could you imagine what that would do to the United States? Okay, besides cut our taxes. Uh, there was one spot there in the House of Commons where there was this, this fancy stairwell. And at the bottom of the stairwell, when they were going through, they found that there's a fellow who's been serving there. In fact, not only has he served there, but his father worked there and his grandfather worked there. And they started, you know, assessing jobs and saying, okay, is this job necessary? And they asked this fellow what he does. And it was like, he's not really sure what he does. He's there. And so they went back in the records, and as they found out that he succeeded his father, who succeeded his grandfather, and they thought, well, we need to find out why that job started. So to find out if it's really, really needed, if it's necessary. Well, they went back all the records, and they found out that when his grandfather had the job, that they had painted this hall. And it took a period of time to paint it and to get it all updated, especially the stairwell. So they hired the grandfather to say as people walked by, be careful of the wet paint. 
be careful of the wet paint. Now it took a period of time to get it all done, so after a while he just became kind of a fixture there. Good morning, good morning. And he was on the salary for a long time, and then his son took over the job. Good morning, good morning. And then his grandson took over the job, which was totally not necessary. But it was tradition. And it just kind of, there are some people sitting in this auditorium right now. You really haven't thought why you're here this morning. You haven't thought, what is this Christmas all about, besides days off of school or work and a bonus? There are some who haven't even thought about, why has God saved me and left me here? And Paul says, no, 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 no. If you want real joy, if you want to really sense and understand how to have a life where there is peace in the middle of different difficulties, where there is the opportunity and the ability to rejoice, and again, he says, I say rejoice, you have to go back to this essence of Christianity that Paul talks about. He talks about in verses two, uh, chapter 2, verses 1, 2, 3, and 4. Watch what he says. If there be any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy that you be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than himself. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Well, Wayne, how did you get this idea of the essence of Christianity? Watch the wording. As he begins this section, he says, if there be any. In the original language, it's what we would call a first-class conditional sentence. That basically it would be better rendered in our English, since. Since this is a fact. Since this is true. Not if, like it's a remote possibility. No, it it is a reality. Since there be consolation in Christ. Since there is hope in Jesus Christ, since when you got saved, he gave you that assurance, that confidence that in Christ you are going to be able to be in heaven one day. That no matter what you experience here, it's going to end and there's going to be glory. Since there is consolation in Christ, since there is comfort in love, that is the body of believers around you. That they help you, they pick you up, that you all of a sudden sense the love of God, that you are encouraged, that he has forgiven you, he hasn't forsaken you. Since, he says, there is that comfort, that is that stimulation, that building up, that incentive to be gracious and loving. Since we have communion with the Holy Spirit, that we can walk with him, we can be filled by his spirit as we've been talking about on Wednesdays. Since we are able to have a close relationship and fellowship through the spirit of God with God Almighty. Since there is emotions. Where it says in this passage, you know, since there be bowels. That makes no sense to you and I and it sounds kind of gross. But in the Bible days, it's where there would be emotional enthusiasm. There would be the zeal. There would be the excitement. Since there is in Christianity an excitement, an in-depth feeling that there is this joy and this rejoicing. In fact, there is the in-depth feeling of mercy. Experiencing God's mercy. Being merciful to others. Showing them. He says, since this is true. Since this is what we experience in Christ, then what are we supposed to do? He says, what are, how are we supposed to respond? Basically, we're supposed to then live out the essence of Christianity. This is what we have, therefore, what do we do? He gives us three different thoughts. We need to strive for unity. He says in verse 2, where he says, hey, fulfill my joy, be like-minded. The idea here is uh, having the same love, having of, being of one accord and one mind. That is being united in what you do and what you think. Since Christ has given us his love, since we can forgive others, since we have communion with the Spirit, since we are united in a body of Christ, he says, here's what, the, here's what you should be doing. You should be united. Not bickering, not fighting, not dividing, but united working for a common goal. Remember, we are called out ones. Literally, that's ecclesia, that's church. We are called out to do God's business. It cannot be done unless we're united. And he calls for us to be united. Now, does that mean we're supposed to be in total agreement about everything? Does that mean in the annual business meeting or anytime we have a church business meeting, we have to have unanimous voting? I don't think so. 
In the book of Acts, they weren't unanimous a lot of times. They had differences of opinions. They had different opinions of how they were going to approach. The Gentiles, when they first came in and over a period of time, they got it right. They had different opinions. Paul, should you go to Jerusalem? Should you not go to Jerusalem? Paul and Barnabas had different opinions of whether they should take John Mark with them again or not. And you can debate, you can have all the discussion you want about, okay, who was right, who was wrong. The point is that in the book of Acts, they agreed to disagree for the sake of let's get this gospel out. Let's work together. Let's go to the higher purpose of what we were called to do, to edify, to evangelize, to worship. And at times we put aside the differences and we get out of our little cliques and we work together for the common good of promoting that gospel of Jesus Christ. There's a business firm that goes around the States. I was reading in an article that they had published about what they experienced by going to a number of companies. They're one of these consulting firms. And I was reading it for management advice. And they were talking about how they go in and oftentimes in some of the Fortune 500 companies, they go in, they have these seminars, and usually they max them about 40 or 50 people. And they said that there's a game that they play with all those different supervisors and CEOs, but it always has the same results. They game is this. They tell the people to get in groups of four. And so if it's 40, you have 10 groups. If it's the 48, they have the 12 groups, whatever. And they get them in their little groups with people that they're comfortable with. And then they give them some building blocks like Legos. And they tell them that here's what you have. We're going to give you a time frame. You work together and you, in that time frame, build the biggest building that you can possibly build. But you have to work as a team. You have to work with others. And then they step back and let the people go at it. They say that some of the groups, some of the, they will start working. Who's going to be the boss? Right away, somebody's got, we got to have somebody in charge. Some of them, they start doing the drawings and they start, and others, they just go right in. They start building. And then when the time's up, nobody, they said in all the years that they, they have done this, nobody has ever built the biggest building of the blocks that they possibly could because In their instructions, they said, get together with others. But what did every group of four do? Stayed with their same four. They never thought outside the box to work together with another group. It was my little group, my little thing. Did Jesus call us to be cliques? Did he call us to just keep with our own little group as a body of Christ? No. He called us to have a unity of mind and of spirit. Not that we all have to think the same way. God bless, we don't all have to dress the same way. We don't all have to cut our tufts the same way. Amen? But we're supposed to be united. The essence of Christianity, the essence that says we have consolation, all of us. We have communion with the spirit. The essence that we have a heart of compassion that's been innately put into us when we've been born by the spirit. We're supposed to be a united people. We're supposed to be striving for unity and then striving for harmony. Look at what he says in the passage. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. Well, we all know what strife is. Strife is one of the fruits of the Spirit. It's not supposed to be mentioned in our life. It's the idea of the petty squabbles. We're not supposed to be all about me and everybody notice what I can do and make sure I get my, my notice and I get my lauds and I get my applause. That's not what it's supposed to be. He says, here we work with harmony. We're in lowliness of mind. We esteem others better ourselves than ourselves. In fact, let's go a step further. What he talks about is charity. Working with unity, working in harmony, working in charity, that we look not every man on his own things, but we look on the things of the others. That we as a body, that we as a group of people united together in Jesus Christ, who has given us a common spirit, a common goal, a common responsibility, that what we're supposed to do in the essence of Christianity, we're supposed to be doing these things. We're supposed to be putting others ahead of ourselves. We're supposed to be others-minded. We're supposed to be working at peace with one another. We're supposed to be working at finding the common ground. We're supposed to be ministering to each other. We're supposed to be loving others within our assembly more than we love ourselves. It's not about you and me. It's about Christ and loving others. The bottom line is this. The bottom line, the essence of Christianity is love. Loving God, loving others. How does that look? Hmm. Well, you and I better get it right. 
Sometimes we get so caught up with the circumstance and the situation that we don't even realize how it looks to others. There's this guy, story goes, young man. He's going into ministry for the first time, and he is so excited. He gets called to become a pastor of this church that's kind of in a remote little quaint town. When he gets there in the candidating process and the first week or so there, he has heard a lot about the previous pastor. Previous pastor, the people did not like. He was lazy, unreliable, undependable. You could call, he couldn't reach him. He, would, he wouldn't show up promptly. And so this young man determined, I am going to make sure whatever I do, I am going to prove that I am reliable and dependable so they cannot criticize me in the same way. So he gets a phone call about two weeks into the ministry from a church member who happens to be the director of a funeral home there in town, an undertaker. He says, Pastor, a fellow in our town has died. He has no family. He has nobody there. And I need somebody to preach his funeral. Would you be willing to preach the funeral? Naturally, the young man is going to make sure that his funeral director member understands he's willing to do whatever. So he eagerly agrees. He can sense from the response of the other end of the line that the funeral director is pleased that the pastor is willing to do this funeral for somebody he's not knowing. Two days later, the funeral's time. The young man has gotten directions, but he doesn't know the countryside real well. So he's racing around, but he's lost. He's not sure exactly where it is, and he's looking at his clock, and, oh, man, I'm going to be late. The funeral director will think less of me, but, you know, good thing there's probably not going to be a lot of people. And as he comes around this bend in this one row, he sees a little church. Oh, that must be the church. As he looks, as he's driving faster towards it, sure, I see a cemetery out back. And when he pulls in the parking lot, comes around the side of the building, there are two guys in the backyard of the church, And there they are. There's a hole dug. In fact, they're starting to fill in the hole. Oh, he feels bad. I'm a little bit late. But I'm going to prove that I'm dependable. I'm going to be able to to really make sure that my funeral director member finds out that I did my task. So he walks up to the guys, jumps on top of the dirt pile and says, Fella, stop. Hold it. He said, I'm here. I'm running late, but I'm here. And he started wax eloquently preaching. In his zeal, he was going to make sure that he preached the best funeral message he could possibly preach. He went a good 25, 30 minutes, and he was just energetic. And those two guys who were were there with shells just shell-shocked, listening. Mouths wide open. The young man finishes. He's proud of himself. He's headed for his car. First stop I'm going to make is the funeral director's place. I'm going to let him know I preached that message that he can depend upon me. Gets in his car, and those two guys are still standing there, mouths wide open. They're looking at the young man drive off. And the one says to the other, have you ever seen anything like that before? The other says, in my 20 years of bearing septic tanks, I've never seen that ever, ever in my life. You've got to get it right, folk. You've got to get it right. Yeah, we can be zealous, but if we don't get this thing right, yeah, then what are we doing? Then what are we doing? We can go through the motions and we can, we can pacify ourselves. And I dare say that some of us walk out of here on a regular basis and we pat ourselves on the shoulder like that preacher that, hey, we did our thing. Did you really? Did you really do the essence of Christianity? Maybe that essence means a little bit more than just sit here and smile at one another. Maybe it means actually doing something. Actually working at unity. Actually working at harmony. Actually sacrificing to minister to somebody else. Maybe it means going and asking for forgiveness. Maybe it means that you do some deed beyond what you've planned for the holidays. Maybe what you do is you put others first for a change. Others in your family. And it's not about you getting your way. Maybe what you need to do is stop the the tearing down and work at this Christmas season building up. Working at complimenting. Working at at being an encouragement to others. Maybe what it means is you put the needs of others ahead of your own desires. That you labor hard. And we as a body work together to meet the needs of other peoples. And not just sit and say, what about me? What about my needs being met? Please notice me. But rather, instead of having and insisting that everybody see me and my problems, you reverse that. And you say, I am going to work 
at harmony and unity and love towards others and give it. Give it, give it, give it. That's the essence of Christianity. The essence is putting others before yourself. You want to see the example of it? The next verse. The next verse goes right into the idea of following the example of Jesus Christ. He says in this very text, he goes on, he says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now understand, this is one of the most theologically in-depth passages in Scripture, but it's put in the middle. It, it is sandwiched between practical Christianity. Why? Because though it talks about Jesus Christ and his great incarnation, it is given as an example. It is given as an illustration of how we should conduct. We are taken to the highest, best example of ministering for the needs of others that we could possibly have. It's Jesus Christ. That's why he says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ. By the way, the word that he used for like-minded, thinking alike, is the same one that's used here in this text about Jesus Christ. Let this mind, this thought pattern, his was selfless. His was a selfless mindset. How do I know that? His attitude of others being focused on them. Watch the wording here. And again, this, is, this we could spend and people have, have fallen tree after tree to write about this text. But let me get the essence of it and keep on moving. Who being in the form of God, who always was is the idea. The verbiage here is very clear that he was eternal. Who was being in the form of God, the idea is the morphe, the idea is this is his inner essence. This is who he was. This wasn't, this wasn't a role he took upon. This was him. This was his nature. Who being in the form of God, which we know in the beginning, we read it at the beginning of the passage, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. How often did Jesus say, I and my Father are one, okay? He used the phrase, I am, some eight times in the Gospels. Why? Because he is God. That's what the passage is talking about. Thought it not robbery. Literally, and that's an unfortunate sometimes in the way that we look at the wording, literally it has the idea, something that he should keep to himself. Something that he would be a Scrooge about. That he wanted to hoard. Something that he wanted to be a Grinch about. That he would keep and not share. He says, no, that's not Jesus Christ. Jesus did not think that his glory, his enjoyment of the deity was something that he should keep, that, that equality with God, but made himself of no reputation. The idea is he became something where he literally emptied himself. Now that's the debate. What did he empty himself of? What was it that Jesus gave up? Well, there's all kinds of theological discussion. You can read about it this Christmas season. You'll see a lot of it. You'll even hear if you watch some of those TV programs that come on some of those goofy networks, okay? And some of the preachers who are, you know, getting new visions and new dreams without going to the Word of God, they'll talk about this. You can get on the internet and you can find some heresy that'll talk about this. And what some will suggest is this. They'll suggest that what Jesus did is he emptied himself of his deity. He was no longer God while he came to this earth. Really? Really? I and my Father are one. Okay? Some will say, well, he gave up all of his powers. Well, if he gave up all of his powers, how did he do the miracles? I mean, it's, just, it's, it's inane, some of the thoughts. Oh, he gave up his closeness to God and the Spirit. He had no fellowship with him. Really? Really? Do you remember Jesus praying in scriptures? Do you remember him feeling led by the Spirit? Sure. So that's, that's just foolish. Then what did he give up? Basically, he did not give up his nature of being God, but he gave up his independent use and decision-making of when he would do his miracles what he would exactly do. In fact, do you notice in Scripture there are no miracles done by Jesus Christ until he was clearly led of the Spirit after the wilderness? 
Hey, do you notice that he says, my, my meat is to do the will of my... Yeah. So what it is is Jesus just gave up his, his independence. His self-rule at times. And okay, it's going to be in my father's timing. You know, my hour has not yet come. And so he was, he was yielding. He was working within that frame mind. So his was a selfless mindset. It wasn't about me, 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 me. It was about others. And he goes on a little bit further and he talks about what he did to show that his was a serving mind. A serving mind. Where he says, okay, even though I have this divine nature within me, okay, I didn't keep it, I didn't scrooge it for myself, but rather he says, I took upon myself, or he took upon himself, the form, the very nature of a doulos. The lowest of servants. He became an individual, not just by acting about it, not just by dressing up for the Sabbath day so he could impress others at the synagogue or at the temple, but he actually took upon himself the form of, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to serve. I'm going to serve. I'm going to serve and minister to people. In the fact that what he did is he was much more than an actor. A few weeks back, we went down to Williamsburg, our place of retreat. When we were down there, we had this one program where this guy came up and he was pretending to be a character. And he was pretending to be Lafayette. He came out and he did a monologue for about 20 minutes. It was fabulous. He did a fantastic job. And he's talking in his French accent and he's, he's giving all the history. And all of a sudden he paused and he became, with one step, he became talking like us. He just came out of character. Well, that one, that one program he was doing was telling the background of how people become those characters. And so he gave us his story and how he got interested in Lafayette and how he studied him, things like that. But he was not Lafayette. Oh, man, he could sound like it, you could portray it, but he wasn't Lafayette. He was Dan somebody or another from, originally from uh, upstate in, uh, in Pennsylvania. And he was play-acting. He's assuming a role that he, he did several hours every week, that he did on multiple occasions, and he did very well. Jesus was not assuming a pretend role of being a servant. That's not what this passage is saying. It is saying that what Jesus did is he actually came with a mindset, I'm going to serve. I'm going to serve God. I'm going to serve others. I'm going to serve God. I'm going to serve others. And he did. In his service... It was not about personal comfort. It was about ministering to others. It wasn't about accolades. He even ministered to people that he knew would not be grateful. He ministered to people that he knew did not understand everything that he was teaching. He ministered to people who would deny him and run away from him. He knew it. He even predicted, you are all going to deny me this night. But he ministered. He ministered. He ministered. Even when he is in the greatest of pain and agony that you and I can imagine. Hanging on the cross, what is he doing about his mother? He's ministering. What is he doing to the thief on the cross? He's ministering. What does he say about the soldiers below? Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. It was a servant's mind. It was a selfless mindset. One that he talks about in this service, servant mind, he took upon him the likeness of man. He was incarnate. He assumed that, that humanity, and then he sacrificed. Selfless, serving, sacrificial mindset. A mindset that says this, he humbled himself. Humbled himself to become obedient unto death. Not just any death, but watch what the passage says. Even the most horrible, vile, wicked uh, the type of death of that day, as according to Galatians 3, being hung, being cursed upon the cross. And we all know what the cross was like, so we don't have to give details about that, but here's Jesus, voluntarily sacrificing himself unto death, the worst of deaths. He says, now, folk, I am writing to you about joy. And I'm telling that if you want real joy, you want real enthusiasm. You want real peace in your heart. Here's what you need to do. You need to understand what is the essence of Christianity. 
You need to then follow the example of your Savior. And you need to serve selflessly even to the point of sacrifice. Now we are called in Peter to walk in his steps. What's that mean? Hmm. Maybe that means that we do exactly what Jesus did. Maybe that means this Christmas season we need to not seek all the best gifts, but we need to start seeking those who are lost. Maybe that means this. Is maybe we should cry a few tears. Genuinely be upset about people around us going to hell. Isn't it amazing how, how we can get upset about so many things? Isn't it easy? Isn't it, isn't it kind of wild how you and I can get bent out of shape all of all kinds of things? Let me pick on me. I can get all flustered and bent out of shape about service order, music, things in here working right, people looking right for example setting. I can get all bent out of shape about the lighting, that lift sitting out in front of our building that looks like an eyesore. I spent over two hours last night not going to sleep, couldn't fall asleep because I am all bent out of shape of what we're going to do in February. You see, in February, we're going to recarpet this room. But to recarpet the room, we've got to lift all the pews up. And that means we take this half of the auditorium, we put them on, all the pews on that half of the auditorium, they get the carpet down, and then the pews have to be gone back. And then what happens after that? They've got to pick all those up, move them over here, and then recarpet that, and then put them. We're going to lose at least two Sundays of this room. Where are we going to meet? What are we going to do with you all? Some of you will volunteer, I know. To sit <laughs> but in my mind, last night, there was a good couple hours of how in the world are we going to do this? What are we going to do on Sundays? What are we going to do on Wednesdays? How are we going to function? You know, are there options? Yeah. The options are we're going to sit on folding chairs. I'll guarantee some are going to be upset over that. We can get upset and flustered and all preoccupied about stuff that is important. Is music important in our worship? Yes. Is the facility important in worship? Yes, it is. Is it important that our sound systems work? Because we can get all concerned about, okay, we're investing in these missionaries. Are these missionaries using the money just right? And that's appropriate. We should have those concerns. Well, let me ask you a question. When's the last time you got really, really upset in church that nobody got saved that Sunday? When's the last time you got really, really upset and you cried before God because your relatives are not born again? Oh yeah, we get upset about stuff. We get upset if we miss the sale. We get upset if the tree isn't just right. We get upset if all of a sudden the car breaks down. And again, those things, I understand, they have their place. Well, when people are dying and going to hell, some in this room, it hasn't phased you at all. You haven't even thought about giving out a tract this whole year. Or if you did, you stuck it in under that napkin. So that they, they, they hopefully find it. But you haven't opened your mouth. Is that the example of Jesus Christ? Meeting the needs of others. That means meet their greatest need. Ministering to the unlovely. The unkind. Going out of your way. You want to see the real depth of sacrifice and selflessness and serving? Jesus ministers to me and you. That is true sacrifice because do we deserve it? How have we treated him? The example set by Christ is that what we do is we understand this is what Christianity is about. Not going through the motions. Not pretending. But in our hearts and lives there is a love for God and a love for others. 
that is built and in growing through the work of God Almighty. We understand that essence and we say, Jesus, I will follow your example. Yes, I will minister to somebody who has done me wrong. Yes, I will, I will try to reconcile where I can reconcile. Lord, I will try to, to reach out to the unlovely, to the lepers of our community, to the Gentiles of our community. And I will go out of my way to minister. Number three, you want real joy? Oh, by the way, I didn't finish it the way I should have. Joy, joy for Jesus, who is set at the glory of the Father who is exalted, and after all of his ministry, there is that rejoicing that all will finally recognize him one day. But let me continue where Paul is getting practical about here and now. Live the exhortations. And he gives several exhortations. After he has given us, here's the essence, here's what it's all about, here's what our master did, how does that look in your everyday life? Wherefore, verse 12, wherefore, because of all this, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Do all things without murmurings and disputings that you may be blameless, harmless, the sons of God without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation among whom you shine as lights holding forth the word of life that I may rejoice in the day of Christ and that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. What's he talking about? He gives several commands in this text. There are, there are some imperatives, but I want you to catch this before we look at them. He is going to talk to all believers, all of them, male, female, young and old, beloved, plural, as you, plural. It's for all of them. He's going to make it clear this is for all times, as you have always, even so in my absence. In other words, what he's going to encourage them to do is to be consistent, to carry out what commands I'm going to give you. You carry them out no matter what you've done in the past. Even if you have done service for the Lord in the past, what about now? That's where he's going. Even though years ago you used to really labor and you used to teach those, those Sunday school classes and you used to do those Bible studies years ago, what are you doing now? That's where he's at. He's not living in the past where some often live. He's saying, what are you doing for the Lord now? And he's going to talk about no matter who's around you, whether I am there watching you or not, you serve, you serve, you serve. He's going to talk about that. No matter what your circumstances. Now, Paul's sitting in prison. These people are going through problems. They're getting the pressure. They're getting some, some false teachers that are trying to challenge them. And he says, no matter what your surroundings, whatever state, and he's going to give them some com commands, no matter what day of the week, what, day, what time of the month, what time of the year, he's saying, here, here's what you need to do. What exactly does he call his readers to do so that they can carry out the essence of Christianity and follow the example of Jesus Christ? Here it is. Here it is. And in, in just laying it out so simply, and as he goes through the passage, he's given all of the reason, the rationale, and he says, here's what I want you to do. Number one command. He says, do you, do you ever see this quote? You ever see it? It's all this idea, be all you can be. Paul builds on that. Paul basically says, be all you can be spiritually. The phrase, work out your own salvation. What's that mean? What's that mean? Literally means keep on. Keep on working out your own salvation. Oh, wait. Does that mean what you and I need to do, that we're supposed to work to make sure we get to heaven? Does that mean we get baptized, do good things, and then we'll eventually merit and do enough good things that we can work our way to heaven? Not at all. For you are saved by grace. It is not of works, lest any man... Yeah, no, no. He says, he says you know, all, of our, all of our righteousnesses are as what? Filthy rags. We can't work our way to heaven. We can't do that. That's not what he means. All the other text says that you can't get to heaven by your own deeds, not by the works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saves us. Is he saying, oh, wait a minute, I have done some and you've got to do the rest. And you've got to complete your salvation, which some churches are in our community are teaching. You believe on Jesus, plus you need to or not do certain things. No, that's not what he's saying. Because who keeps us saved? God. Who 
completes our salvation, who is the author and finisher of our faith, it's Jesus Christ. It's not you and me. It's not a preacher. It's not a church. can't be that. Literally, he is saying this work is the idea of toil. Put effort into doing what? Great effort, effort into bringing to the surface that which is below surface. That which is inside. It is mining out, oaring out, bringing out, showing out what God has done inside of you. You have salvation here. You've got the love here. You've got the communion of the spirit here. You've got the bowels. You've got the mercies here. You've got the essence of Christianity. What are you supposed to do? Let it come out. Let it come out. Let the forgiveness that is in here from God Almighty be shown to others. Let the unity that you have, the communion you have with God Almighty be shown to others. Let that mercy that God has bestowed upon you be shown to others. Let that spirit of sacrifice and giving up so as to reconcile, that Jesus gave up so much to reconcile you to God. Let that, from in here, be done with you and others. It is to bring to the surface. You say, well, that's going to be so hard. Well, wait a minute. Look at the passage. It is God which works in you both to will and to do those good things. God knows you can't do this on your own. God understands that left to your own thoughts, you probably couldn't come up with it. So he works in your heart. He works in your life. He brings thoughts to your, to your, uh, to your con conscience. And he's trying to build you up. He's trying to work in your heart. He's trying to give you incentive. He says, let God do that work. Let God minister in and through you like you can't believe. Number two, be different. Be different from the world around you. Watch what he does. He says in verse 15, he does something that's really interesting. In verses 14 and 15, he does a lot of contrasting. Okay, let me show you the contrast first of all. What he does is he talks about the world and he talks about the believers. He describes the world that we live in. He says it is crooked and it is perverse. The idea, it, it, is, it is bent from what God intended and then it's been twisted even worse in a permanent fashion. He uses a perfect participle here to give the idea, make sure that it has been and it is and it continues to be really, really twisted. But the believers, he gives a contrast. The believers, what does he say? That what they're supposed to do, and I've lost some of my, my slide here, it's supposed to be this. You are to be blameless, harmless, he says, in this, in this way, without rebuke. The idea of the, of the, um, the, second, the harmless is that you're not supposed to be mixed. You're to be pure. You're to be sincere. The idea of the blameless is that nobody can accuse you of anything that sticks. The idea we see here of the rebuke is without reproach. You are to live in such a way that people can't accuse you of violating the essence of Christianity or the example of Jesus Christ. Let's see what happens. Although you and I are in this world, and God says the world is perverse, he is not advocating that we isolate from it. He doesn't say that in this text. Text. He doesn't say go to a monastery. Go and become a bunch of Baptist monks and monkettes. He doesn't say that. He doesn't tell us that what we need to do is that we have no contact with the world. How does salt become salt to the world around if it has no contact and left on the shelf? How does light do any good if it's only shining in the light store? In the, in the place where it's already well lit? We are supposed to be light in the darkness of the world. It means we have to have some, some contact we have to be around it to some degree that we have to try to affect and infect our co-workers, our classmates, our relatives. What he is advocating here is you and I, in order to impact them, we've got to be different. We have got to be different from the world, the lost people around us, in conduct and in character. We're to be blameless. We're to be harmless. We're to be without rebuke. That means you and I can't do the same things they do. We can't talk the same way they talk. We can't have the ethics the same way that may be giving in to lying or cheating or whatever. He says, you've got to be different. And by the way, he gives a major, major way of being different. Did you catch it in verse 14? Here's how believers of all people are to be different from the world around them. Do all things. Should we continue reading and get convicted? Without what? Murmuring means just what you just did. <laughs> to yourself. That's murmurings. 
Grumblings is to do what I'm doing. Be louder about it. Isn't it good that none of us ever struggle with this? That it's only others? Isn't it good that we don't murmur to ourselves about the difficulties we find ourselves in? Isn't it good that you and I, we've got this down so pat that we really are different from others around us? We go to church. We carry Bibles. We sing certain songs. We're different. We're all that God wants us to be. Really? Where's the difference when it comes to your humor and what you talk about? Where's the difference between your coworkers when it comes to using the Lord's name and you speaking about God? You better be different. Where's the difference about how you speak about your employer when the others are complaining about him? Or the, or the teachers? The authorities God has put in your life. Where's the difference when it comes to the difficulty of maintaining groceries? Where's the difference when your friends are talking about a mutual friend and you speak different than they do about that person that they're tearing down? Where's the difference? The way you respond to others around you when you aren't feeling well. How different are you and I? How different are we than some of our classmates and co-workers who are sitting in church right now. They're sitting in their liturgical churches, their denominational churches. They go one service a week. Where's your difference of study and worship when it comes to the Word of God? They read their Bibles in their church services once a week. What about you? What about your praying to the Lord? They pray in their church service. If this is all, if this is it, that you portray and say, oh, you've got to become like me, what's the difference when it comes to commitment to God, to worship, to the Word? When you say, you've got to come, become like me, and I can tell risque stories, and I can you know, fly off the handle and use God's name in vain, but you need to be like me. Really? Why? He says in this passage, you and I are to be pure. We're to be different. We're not supposed to be watching the garbage that is immoral, inappropriate, promoting adultery. We're not supposed to be filling our minds with that. We're to be different, really different, so that people can look and they can say, you are a Christ follower. You love like a Christian should love. That's what he's saying. That's what he's challenging us. And if we're not different, it's not that bad. Young man grew up, 1800s. He's growing up in Germany. His dad's a successful businessman. They're Jewish. The young man's father, he idolizes. His dad is really devout, good, honest businessman, very devout in his religion, family-oriented. Boy, in their Jewish faith, they observed everything. This young man is captivated by his dad's loyalty, especially his loyalty to, to the Lord and his religion. The young man, then, is growing up. As he hits his teen years, they move out of this, this area of Germany. They move to another region where there is no Jewish synagogue. There's only a Lutheran church. Dad in the first day, finds out no synagogue. Hadn't checked it out before. No synagogue. The church is there, and a lot of wealthy people are in that church. Dad come home, comes home and announces, from now on, we're going to be going to the Lutheran church. Mom and the kids are, wait a minute, wait a minute. For all these years you've been telling us we're Jewish, we're to be distinct, da 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 He says, no, we're going to start going to the Lutheran church because it'll be good for my business. The young man was flabbergasted. He thought that dad would get over it, but dad didn't get over it. As he went through his teen years, he saw his dad's hypocrisy. That religion, that everything was just about making the next big buck. The young man left home, went to England, and did his study abroad, became a philosopher, became a writer. You've all heard of him. 
He wrote some of the most influential writings philosophically of the last century. In fact, he wrote the Communist Manifesto. And in the Communist Manifesto, he describes religion as what? The opiate of the masses. Why did he get so disenchanted with religion? His father. Your family members. Are they drawn to the essence of Christianity, the example of Christ, the exhortation by the way you consistently live different from the world around you? You see, God wants us to be different. God wants us to be all we can be because it leads to this one thing. It's not a command, it's an assumption. Here he says... So all of this, so that, verse 15, you may, he goes on, being without blameless, crooked, he says that you shine as lights in the world while holding forth the word of life. He doesn't command it. He's assuming you are going to be a light. He's assuming you are holding forth the word of life. He's assuming you are being the witness that God has intended you to be. By the way, the word he uses for lights isn't the idea of this light bulb up here, or those lights. It is the idea of something reflecting light. It's the idea of the moon. The moon reflects the sun's light. You are to reflect the light of Jesus Christ. The goal in our life is just this. He says, this is what God expects of us. God expects us to be presenting his message to a crooked and perverse world around us. He's saying in this that we are to be witnesses at all times, no matter who is around whether, whether it's difficult or not, we do it through the power of God who helps us to will and to do of his good will. This group was saved 10 years. You're still supposed to be witnesses. You're supposed to be sharing. And by the way, it's for all of them. It's not just for the preachers. It's not just for the Sunday school teachers. It's for all of you. He says, all of you that I'm writing to, you're supposed to be witnesses no matter what is going on. No matter what your setting. What your surroundings. You're to be witnesses. Paul, does he say what he, does he do what he says? He's a witness in jail. He is using his circumstances. He is saying, let's be bringing it out, bringing it out. Ben Franklin, when he was a young man, he had a farm outside of Philadelphia area. And in this farm, he was working and experimenting with a variety of things to be able to produce more crops. He found that some of the properties that he had torn down, buildings he had torn down, he took the plaster and had it spread on the fields. Something in the plaster, probably the manure that helped keep it together, was on the fields. And he told his neighbors, if you spread used plaster on the field, it's like a fertilizer. Oh, they laughed. They mocked him. They called him an idiot. Who would? <laughs> plaster is not a fertilizer. So he didn't say anything more. But the next spring, what he decided to do was just, I'll experiment. Right along the road that ran, you know, main road here, he had his patch of land. So he had the plaster spread, not over the whole field right there, but only certain spots in the field. In fact, there were certain spots that spelled something. Then a few weeks later, as the crops came up, where there was the plaster acting as fertilizer, it was greener and higher. And it spelled out something so simple that just said, basically, here's the plaster. His friends couldn't deny it. You're to be the plaster of Jesus Christ. That means you're supposed to be speaking volumes. You're supposed to be by your life and by your lips sharing the word of God. Making an impact, speaking and drawing people to want to say, I want what you have. Now, God has put you in different spots. God's put you down in the hospital in Fairfax. God has put some of you at different businesses. God has put some of you in different high schools. Has he made a mistake? God makes no mistakes where he puts you. Has God made a mistake by putting you with road crews? Has God made a mistake by putting some of you in Walmart? Now, maybe, maybe McDonald's, yes. You know, Burger King, no. Yeah. There's no mistakes. You're to be a witness. And when we talk about holding forth a light, 
what iconic American image automatically comes to mind? Doesn't it? Was it in the wrong place? Do you realize that historically it wasn't supposed to be in the United States? Historically, when Bartoli started designing it and getting the idea, he was in Egypt, he's down there for a period of time, and he's, in, he's an engineer checking out the Sphinx, checking out the pyramids, getting ideas, and while he's there, he meets De La Seps, who is the guy, the French engineer, who was leading that whole Suez Canal, and they talked about getting a unique lighthouse at the mouth of the Suez. For 10 years... They came up with ideas as the work was going on. What would they do? And they came up with a lady, a lady holding a torch. But they couldn't get the funds. They couldn't get the funds. After 10 years, Bartoli comes back to France. He has this image of this goddess holding up this torch that, oh, it's a wonderful idea, but nobody's going to fund it. He gets back, and when he gets back, the French government asks, can you design something that we can give as a gift to America for their centennial? And so can you come up with an idea? And what he did is he modified it. You know, so she's holding the declaration. So the chains are at her feet showing that the bondage is done. And so he had with the, with the dates and everything. And so he took his concept. He puts it, he gets it designed. They build it. They put it and has it served as a beacon to many people, a beacon of hope. We know that. We know that's true. There was no mistake. There's no mistake. You say, well, I intend to be a beacon here. No, God has put you there. Right where you're at to be a beacon to those kids you give on rides to. To the clerks that you work with. To the teammates on your soccer, basketball, wrestling team. You're to be a witness. To the nurses that are ministering to you. To those who are in your retirement group. You're to be a witness. The essence of Christianity demands it. The essence of Christianity is loving others. The example of Jesus Christ says, you've got to be doing this. The exhortations are, live in such a way that you can be this beacon. You've got to hold forth the light. You've got to bring forth the gospel. You will have great joy as you share the gospel. And friends, this is a perfect season, an easy season. You know, last week we went on one of these, I mentioned Wednesday, I went on one of these, um, what do you call them, ropes courses. And we're walking these ropes courses, you know, 20 feet up in the air, and there's no straps, but just a, a harness that holds you when you fall. And, you know, I'm doing this jittery thing, getting across. Eden's three. She's falling behind. Easy peasy, Grandpa. Easy peasy. Easy peasy. It's like, yeah. Um, <laughs> you may feel like going to me this morning by what I'm going to say. But this season of all seasons, it's easy peasy to give out the gospel. It's easy peasy. Why haven't you? Can I, can I invite us to do something to make this passage real for, if you're visiting, this isn't for you. This is for our family. We're to work together, to be united, harmony, striving together to work and honor Jesus Christ. This is a ministry where it takes a lot of us to work together. Does it get tense? You better believe it. When somebody hangs their wallpaper on that wall and it's a little bit cockeyed. Okay. Harmony. When somebody has one of those beards that are fake and it's cockeyed, and you want to walk up and just... <laughs> unity of purpose. Getting the gospel out. Oh, I understand it's a busy week, busy month. I understand that. I understand we've got a lot of stuff to do. Working to get out the gospel. Striving together as a team to do what God has placed us in this community to do, to be a beacon. To work, not only in the program, but we have a, we have a, um, a, a table, a table filled with invitations that look like this. If every one of us got one family, one coworker, it's going to, it means we invite more. But if we each had one person come who's unchurched, what a witness we could be to hundreds of people in this community. We do this together. We strive together. And my challenge and my encouragement is don't walk out. Don't walk out and say, oh, whether it's good or bad or short or long. Well, none of you are going to say it's short. Okay, you go out. Don't, walk, don't comment about the message. Do it. Do it. 
Set a goal that says, I am going to get somebody to come to the reenactment so they can hear the gospel. Or I'm going to share the gospel in some way, shape, or form this Christmas season. This is my goal. This is my plan. This is what I'm going to give to Jesus Christ. You got gifts. You're buying gifts. What are you going to do for Christ? He came for those people to get saved. He died for those people to get saved. He wants them to get saved. You're his mouthpiece. Jesus, this is my gift. I am going to share the word or use an opportunity like the reenactment to share the word. I'm going to do it. Your gift. Your gift for Christ.